Please take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 7, the book of Daniel chapter 7. And if you have ever been to a an amusement park, and I'm sure many, if not most, or all of you have, you'll notice that there are a lot of different kinds of rides. I'm sure you have a favorite ride that you remember going on. Now that I am older, I have graduated past the point where I find all of the rides that I once found enjoyable to be enjoyable. Now they do things that I don't really enjoy them doing to me. There's a time when you would get on a ride, and some rides, they they, they take you from the ground and they immediately lift you up and then drop you and then lift you and then drop you and then lift you. Just thinking of that again, like, does things to me. And then there are those rides where the higher, the, 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 the bigger the drop from the roller coaster, it has that long, slow tick, tick, tick as a chain pulls you up or whatever mechanism it is, pulls the car and everyone up to, to go up this long, long incline before it drops you down into almost a vertical dive. Just fun things to do, right? And, um, and this sermon is going to be less like the first kind of ride where it lifts you up and drops you down and more like the second. That is, the on-ramp for this sermon is a bit longer. And that's because we are now at Daniel 7 and a massive turning point in the book of Daniel. If you're new joining us this morning, we have been walking slowly through the book of Daniel. Daniel is a massively important book in the Old Testament. We have been as we have been walking through, we have seen glorious truth after glorious truth. Glorious truth of who our God is, how he is taking care of his people, how we can trust in him. And we've seen all this in the example of Daniel himself. But now we come to Daniel 7 and everything changes. It is a big difference. If you are reading through Daniel chapters 1 to 6, everything is good. These are stories, heroic stories of faith, wonderful stories. Daniel 7 is different. Follow along. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of Daniel chapter 7, and you're going to get a sense of how different it is. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. I love in the New King James, telling the main facts. That is, he is telling the summary here, all right? Verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly... Another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, 
It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous things or speaking great things. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days were seated His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning bright. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. You get a sense of how different this is. We have been talking about Numerous great stories in Daniel's life. And then all of a sudden we get this. This is a a turning point. In Daniel, from Daniel 7 to Daniel chapter 12, the book of Daniel shifts, it changes. It is a, a turning point in perspective. We have gone from the the microscopic view to the macroscopic view. It is From Daniel 1 to 6, it's like you've taken a walk in a park. You're seeing the park around you. You're able to observe the trees. And we are able to observe the individual experience of of Daniel and his three friends earlier in Daniel's chapter 2. But in Daniel chapter 7 to 12, we are no longer with our feet firmly planted on earth. It is as if the lens has been pulled back and we are given this bird's eye view, perhaps a 30,000 foot view, maybe even farther back, maybe even, you know, some distant satellite trying to get a a good grasp of the orbits of the planets in our solar system. This is a view of history. This is a change, not only in the perspective, but a change in the book's contents. If Daniel 1 to 6 is all facing backwards, looking at history, This is looking at history coming up. This is prophecy. But it's not just a, in the perspective, in the the look, it's also a a massive change in the kind of literature that we've been reading. We have gone from narrative in Daniel 1 to 6 to now we have what is often called apocalyptic literature. That is, it it uses images and, uh, and symbols to communicate real truth, real ideas, real substantive things. And just as Daniel, in, verse, in chapters 1 to 6, is often called to be that interpreter for kings and others when they receive visions, Daniel himself, in Daniel chapter 7 to 12, he himself is now going to rely on the Lord to provide an interpreter for him. And apocalyptic literature is, is really unique. It, it invites us to, to picture what is happening. And it's like a series of pictures, of pictures that are that are here, present, 
It's as if we are to visualize and see this series of pictures. One, well, first this this stirred up ocean or sea, and then one beast after another coming up. And you and I are invited to, to kind of picture, what does this look like in your mind's eye? What might it have looked like to Daniel? We are supposed to visualize, to see as best we can. More than this, it, it invites us to kind of to feel, to respond more viscerally to this text. In every one of the visions, except for one time, every time we see Daniel receiving a vision, with only one exception, Daniel responds with fear and trembling or anxiety of some kind. You see this in verse 15. Daniel gets this vision in Verse 15, he says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And then again, at the end of the chapter, verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. These things trouble him. They bothered him. That that is, these were such massive ideas, it stirred him up. It invites us in to to feel along with Daniel, to feel the sense of unsettling. But there are are some pitfalls and dangers that we need to avoid. Perhaps the, the first danger that we must avoid is that we will be, because we will be so intimidated by all this imagery, all these pictures, we may decide that we will just avoid Daniel 7, 1, or Daniel 7 to 12 altogether. It would be a lot easier if we only had the first six chapters of Daniel. It would be nicer. It would be more convenient, easier for us to understand. Daniel chapter 7 to 12 is, if it's a nightmare for Daniel, and he's troubled by it, it is often a nightmare for Bible interpreters and Christians today. It is rocky ground. It is like a field planted with landmines, all right? We have here enormous visions, boundless ideas, symbols that are, that are here. And so often what will happen is that people, we read this text, we are intimidated by it, and so we just close our Bibles or we move to another part of the Bible that is easier, easier to grasp. I love, I appreciated how one commentator pointed to us how this is not, this is an act of unfaithfulness, partly because we as Christians believe that every word of God is the word of God, including these parts that are difficult for us to understand. But more than that, he drew our, he, this writer draws attention to the fact that when a man marries a woman, he does not marry a woman because he understands women. And if he married a woman because he thought he understood women, he would soon realize he understood nothing at all. And perhaps the longer he is married to that woman, the more he might understand that woman. But he will also find that there are more things about her that mystify him than don't. And yet, despite the fact that he doesn't, and we do not have all the knowledge about Women, though we are married to them, or wives, you married your husband without fully understanding who this person who is slightly crazy is, yet you married them. And so even though we may approach this text with questions, and we ought to approach with questions, 
We ought not to be so intimidated by it. It is God's word, and he invites us, calls us, commands us to study it, to grow in it, to glory in him through it. He has something for you here. There's another danger, and that is the danger of engaging in perhaps too much speculation, investing in every detail, too much imaginative idea, too many imaginative ideas about what it might mean. I have read enough Christians in church history, their interpretation of these passages, and I have heard enough preaching growing up to have plenty of examples of this. I'm sure you do as well. Where Christians try to take images and symbols of what we find here in Daniel or in similar literature like the book of Revelation, and we try to say, oh, this must be this, and and this is exactly what we're experiencing today. But it often doesn't work like that. We can be, and we can find so attractive the idea that to invest so much meaning, so much significance, so much fascination with these verses, with these images, that we can, we can be fought or caught up with this idea that you and I are somehow, we have somehow cracked the secret code to the Bible. We have somehow discovered the cipher to all of history and to the future and to end times events now. We know how things are going to play out in the Middle East because we have this. and We, we have it all figured out. We must be careful. Scriptures warn us of endless genealogies and speculation about these things. We must be careful, even as we approach this text, and texts like it, of becoming too fascinated with them and investing too much in them. There's another danger to us. If one danger is that we would be intimidated and avoid it altogether, and another danger may be that we become so fascinated and so filled with speculation about every single detail that we lose the overall significance, another danger is that we allow our our ideas, our theological systems about the end times to rule the text of Scripture rather than to submit our ideas of the end times to the text of Scripture. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I, if you have read the Bible at all, and even if you haven't, you have a system. You cannot escape it. A system is merely a set of ideas about how we we put all these texts together in the Bible and how we think the Lord is going to work. We are called to use our minds when we read the Bible. We need to. Part of that is to imagine how, how does this text and these texts, how do they relate? And so we come up with ideas and systems. But the danger for us all is that rather than submitting our ideas or systems to the Word of God, we force the Word of God to comply, to conform to what we expect it to say. Systems are helpful things, but they can be a problem when they blind us to God's Word. And so we must work as best we can to always be aware of what we are doing, why we are doing, how we are approaching the Word. And our aim at every point must be to humbly submit our ideas and systems to the Scriptures rather than force the Scriptures to say what we think is there. 
So how is this going to help us? How, how is all of this going to help us as we approach the text? Three ideas need, we need to have as we approach this kind of prophecy. The first is that we will approach the language of Daniel 7 with all of its images, with all of its symbols. We will approach it plainly. That is, we will seek to understand Daniel 7 in the light of what Scripture says. It is given interpretation. Even within Daniel 7, explanation is given of what these various images mean, of what they signify. More than that, we can draw from other passages of Scripture that will make these things clear. So even though Daniel is seeing these things, we can find these things rooted in other passages of Scripture. As we do not need to approach this text with our imaginations running rampant. We can approach this text plainly and grasp what it is saying through the plain use of language. And we'll see that. And so we can approach it plainly, understanding the light, uh, understanding the symbols in light of what Scripture says, but we can also approach this text confidently, knowing that the Lord has this text for us knowing that he has us to learn something here. And that the Lord is not trying to hide this truth from us. He wants to make it clear, and he is using this literature, this kind of writing, to do things that nothing else in the world would. We can trust that he will guide us, that he will direct us. But even as we approach it confidently, even as we approach it expecting to be able to understand the plain language here we want to maintain that we approach this text humbly humbly that is we want to submit ourselves our ideas to god's word i think one of the best examples of this that i can that i can think of is a man by the name of jc ryle many of you may have heard of him he was a well-known preacher in England during the 19th century. That is, from the beginning of the 1800s to the end. He lived and served and preached in England during that time. Well-known speaker, well-known writer in his day, and his books are still sought after. And he, he preached confidently through Daniel and through Revelation, expecting, looking, longing for the Lord's return, longing for the kingdom on earth, longing to, to see and to reign alongside him. And yet, even as J.C. Ryle is firmly expecting all of these things, he cautions Christians in his day. He began to see that there was a, a sense of overzealousness, or perhaps we might even say overconfidence in what we could be absolutely sure of when we approached texts like this. And so he wrote these words, or preached these words, saying, Be gentle in argument with those that differ from you. Remember that a man may be mistaken on this subject and yet still be a holy child of God. It is not the slumbering on this subject that ruins souls. That is, it is not by not talking about this that we ruin souls. It is a lack of grace. Above all, avoid dogmatism and positivism. That is, avoid certainty and especially about symbolic prophecy. It is a sad truth, but a truth never to be forgotten, that none have injured the doctrine of the second coming of Christ so much 
as its overzealous friends. Nothing, he goes on to say, nothing I firmly believe has brought more discredit to the study of prophecy than the excessive rashness and overweening confidence with which many of its advocates have asserted the correctness of their own interpretation and impugned the exposition of others. Too many have written and talked as if they had a special revelation from heaven. Dogmatism is a great trap which Satan lays in men's hearts when he cannot prevent them from studying the apocalypse. Let us not fall into it. Let us rather pray for a spirit of modesty and humility in offering our solutions of the deep things of symbolic prediction. Let us allow that we may possibly be wrong and that others may possibly be right. Happy is that student of prophecy who is willing to confess that there are many things of which he is yet ignorant. Happier still, and more in common too, is he who is able to use those three hardest words in the English language, I was mistaken. Brothers and sisters, before we dive into God's word, would you join me in praying, asking for the Lord's mercy on us as we study it. Father, this is indeed your word. It is not ours. So even, O Lord, as we bring to it the desire to hear from you, and we bring to it our ideas, we pray that you would give us hearts that submit all things to you. Knowing that in your word you speak and you declare. Grant us grace to rejoice in you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel 7. So one of the most pressing questions that we will think about as Christians is how we are to relate to the world around us. Questions like this have engaged Christian thinkers for centuries. In 1975, a man, a, a, what we call, what we call a liberal theologian by the man by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote a book that became well-known, a book titled uh, Christ and Culture. And in that book, he was arguing how Christians were to relate to the culture around them. Many books have since been written on this subject. How are we to live? How are we to relate to the world around us? Most recently, D.A. Carson in his book, uh, Christ and Culture Revisited in 2008, he works through Niebuhr's analysis and he sets it aside and he works through the scriptures to help guide believers in understanding this. This question, how are you to relate to this world, is massively important, whether you are 83 or 43 or 13. This question is important for you. How are you going to live and relate to the world around you? Daniel 7 helps us with that question. It helps us with that question by helping us think through, from God's point of view, what is, what are the nations like? What is the world around us like? It gives us the character of the nations and the culture around us. So walk with me in Daniel 7, verse 1. Very first thing we see is that Daniel dates his vision to the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. 
Now, you and I, we tie significant dates in our lives and in the world, we tie them to, to certain years. So if I was to ask you, when you were married, if you are married, you would give me a date. You would give me a year. If I was to ask you, what year the Twin Towers fell in New York, you would give me 2001. In the ancient world, they didn't have dates like that. They didn't operate. They had years. They understood the progress of years, but they didn't work like you and I do. We have inherited a dating system from the Roman Empire, and we are very thankful for it. And we would look back and say, this year, this time, the event of this, the, the year of this event in which he receives the vision, we will date, saying it is 553 BC. But Daniel didn't have 553 BC. No one operated by that number. And so in the ancient world, the way they marked when every nation and every culture and every city had a different set of dating, different set of system of dating, not d dating as in how to go out with a girl or how to go out with a boy, but a system of dating, they, they would operate, they would structure their dates and they would order them by the year of kings. It was common. You see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This event happens in the first year of this king. This event happens in the 13th or the 12th or the 21st year of this king. It is a way of marking out significant events. It would be like instead of asking Instead of saying, when did the Twin Towers fell, and responding by saying, oh, they fell in 2001, it would be like saying and responding, when did the Twin Towers fell? They fell in the second year of the first term of President Bush's presidency. Well, that's a mouthful. Thank goodness for 2001. And so Daniel here is, he's dating it to this specific year, which it falls between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel. About 15 years prior to Daniel chapter 5 is when we have this vision, when Daniel receives this vision. We do not know exactly why Daniel receives this vision at this time. Perhaps it is because now with King Belshazzar's new inaugurated reign in Babylon. Perhaps by this point, the people of Israel have wondered, is God ever going to rescue us? Will there ever be an end to our oppression? Will, will this exile ever end? Will we ever have the land back? Will we ever be restored? Perhaps they are beginning to doubt God's promises. Perhaps they are beginning to, to question, is God for us? And second, we know from verse 7 and 17 that the beasts here represent kings and kingdoms that are all future to Daniel at this time. We see that those great beasts, verse 17 of Daniel 7, those great beasts which are four are four kings or four kingdoms which arise out of the earth. What this tells us is that what Daniel is giving here is all future. It is all prophetic. It is, he is looking ahead. Daniel is given a vision of kingdoms that are going to rise, beginning with Babylon, his current kingdom, into future kingdoms. 
And part of what is so astonishing as we walk through Daniel 7 to Daniel 12, one of the things you're going to see that is, that is mind-blowing is that Daniel, even in this vision that is symbolic, the, the prediction of the kingdoms and their characteristics are so specific that it boggles the mind how someone living in the middle of the 6th century BC could predict with accuracy the nations that are coming. So amazing is this, so incredulous you might find this, that some Christians, many Christians, many scholars believing that this couldn't possibly be so specific and prophetic, they believe that perhaps Daniel didn't really write this, perhaps someone else later, living much later, centuries later, claimed to be Daniel, wrote these texts, and then it had it added on to the book of Daniel. The holes in that theory are massive, and we need not spend time going over it. But what you and I can be certain about is that Daniel is recording his vision of these future kingdoms that are going to arise. In the weeks ahead, we are going to spend more time. We're going to come back and look at these kingdoms. We do not have time to get into which kingdoms they are in all their specifics, nor get into some of the details of the text. But I want us to see, first off, the nature, the character of these kingdoms is revealed. These earthly kingdoms we see are, they are beastly. They are beastly. That is, their origin, you, you'll notice in verse 2, their origin comes from what we are told, the great sea. Now, it may be the Mediterranean Sea that is pictured here. That, that might be it. But the point isn't that we are to nail down which body of water is being seen here. The point is that here, this great sea that is being stirred up by the four winds of heaven is now producing these, these four beasts. They are arising out of the sea. And in the ancient world, the sea was always often pictured as a place of chaos, a place of rebellion against God. That is, it was a, a place that was unpredictable. A place that is driven by fierce winds. A place that is difficult to navigate. This is why in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 15, when we are told we're given a vision of the throne room of heaven, we are told that there's a sea of glass there. The picture is that the sea, that rebellious place, that the place of chaos and rebellion has been completely made at peace under the, role, under the rule and authority of God. Or in Revelation chapter 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, we are told that in that place there will be no suffering, there will be no tears, and then we are told the sea will be no more. Well, if you don't like the beach, that's great. You don't ever have to worry about it. New heavens and the new earth, no more beaches. But I don't think that's really what John is saying. I don't think he's saying there's no more ocean. The existence of the ocean is a terrible, godless thing. That's not what he's saying. What he's trying to get at there in the book of Revelation is saying that there is therefore in the new heavens and new earth, there is no rebellion. There is no source of chaos. There is nothing that exists that is wrong in that place, in the happy land of those who dwell with their God. But here... In Daniel 7, these beasts, they arise out of this, out of the sea that has been stirred up. You are to picture a, 
a storm-tossed sea. Perhaps you have seen videos of ships at sea and the massive waves that come and go and rock the ships. Perhaps some of you have served on ships at sea and you have first-hand experience of riding out storms on the ocean. You know what that looks like. That is the kind of sea that these beasts rise out of. More than that, the fact that they are described as beasts is important. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, beasts are described, especially in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, they are pictured as those things that are creatures of God. These are things that are creations of God. And yet these beasts, they are acting as anything other than submissive creatures that are, that are under the authority of God. They are acting as if they are themselves their own gods. They are beastly. They are fierce. They are violent. They are oppressive and terrifying. Again and again, we read about these beasts coming up. They look terrifying. They sound terrifying. The second beast is, is like a bear that's kind of raised up on one side. It's got three bloody ribs in its mouth. It's told to oppress. It's told to terrify. The fourth beast comes in and it breaks to pieces. It destroys. It devastates. These beasts do everything that they ought not to do. This does not mean... These, these beasts picture kings kingdoms, specific kings and kingdoms, but on a broader scale, they give us a picture of what all nations, all kings, all kingdoms are like. That is, they, they picture that all kings, all nations, in some form or another, they defy God. They do exactly what they are not to do. This does not mean that all nations are only and always evil, all powers on earth God has ordained. And God has given all these, God gives these nations authority to accomplish certain ends. What we find in these, in these beasts is that the creation order is, is flipped upside down. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, what we find is that God creates the animals, he creates the creatures, he creates the beasts of the field, and then he puts humanity over top and calls Adam and Eve to have dominion over all the creatures of the air, all the creatures of the sea, and all the beasts of the field. And then Genesis 3 comes, and we find that one of those beasts comes, and he deceives, and through deception, this this divine order of humanity who is to rule the world in such a way under God that is to give God glory, all of this now is flipped on its head. The beast is now having dominion and deceiving humanity. And that is partly what is pictured here in Daniel 7 is the continuation of what we find in Genesis chapter 3. The beasts are now in charge. The beasts are now ruling what was meant for good has now been reversed. What we have in this passage is, is human depravity writ large on the history of the world. You have probably heard that old phrase, 
Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But as Christians, we would adjust that a little bit. It's not that power corrupts, but it's that humans corrupted by sin corrupt power. What we have pictured here are these kingdoms that span centuries into Daniel's future, even into our future with that final kingdom, with that final king. And these, these nations are acting in ways that are oppressive. These nations, these kingdoms are acting in ways that are defiant of God. Well, part of what we want to look at as we look at this passage and part of the question we want to ask, one of the questions we want to ask is why does the Lord reveal this to Daniel? Why do you think Daniel is given this vision of four kingdoms? We will spend more time in weeks to come what these kingdoms are, what they signify, what all this is. Let us get close to ending by, by asking, why, why even bother with this? I mean, what is Daniel supposed to do with this information? What are you supposed to do with this information? I mean, Daniel, it's not like he has any ability to change any of this. God is telling him one kingdom is going to come up. It is going to act unjustly. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And that one is going to give way to one who defies God openly. Well, what's Daniel supposed to do with this? He can't change any of that's what's going to come. And it's not like he can enrich himself on it. These are things that are going to happen centuries from when he lives and dies. So why tell Daniel? Why tell Daniel and why does Daniel tell and write these things down and give it to the people of Israel? I think part of what you and I need to see is that the Lord is preparing his people, Israel, at that time just as he's preparing and he's calling you and I to be equally prepared, to be ready to endure for the long haul. You know, decades ago, decades ago, I can't believe I'm saying that, decades ago I was in college. Wow, That's, time has flown. Decades ago, as I was in college, I worked my way through college as a roofer. I hated roofing. Some of, you are, some of you are roofers, have my deepest respect for what you do. There was no greater encouragement for me to go back to college every semester than roofing. One summer, as I was in my second year of college, I was roofing. My brother joined me in roofing. He began to work alongside me and the group of men with whom I worked. As we worked, I, I, as a college student, I was desperate for money. I needed money all the time. I, I knew I had bills to pay, and I was going to need to save up for the next semester. So I wanted every day to be, to be, so that I could work. And roofing is very difficult. That is, if it rains, you don't work. You can't work in the rain. And so I was wanting there to be no rain. And that summer... The Lord was kind to me, not so kind to some others, but he was kind to me. Our area went through a terrible drought. I worked every day, and I was happy. My brother, who was working alongside me, did not need to save money the way I did. 
He did not feel that pressure yet. So we would work, we would get up early, we would go to work, we would come home around 7, 8 o'clock at night. We would work as my, my, my boss wanted us to work. As soon as the light was up, he wanted us on the roof. And until the sun went down, we were supposed to be working. And we'd get home, we would eat dinner, and our practice was pretty much eat dinner and then go right to bed because the next morning was coming rather quickly. But my brother would always spend 20, 30 minutes, and he would go into the living room, and he would watch the news. He was looking for one thing. He wanted to watch the weather person. He wanted to hear these words, there will be rain tomorrow. Every day, there will be rain tomorrow. And any hint that there would be rain, he would walk into our bedroom, we shared a bedroom, and he would say with confidence, they're saying it might rain tomorrow, I don't think we're going to work, oh, we can finally have a day off. And I would just say, we'll see. We'd get up in the morning, day after day, dry as a bone. I was happy. He was angry. All summer long, this went on. I think what the Lord is doing here is he is preventing his people from Israel who are constantly looking for that weatherman to say, maybe now, maybe now, Maybe now we'll finally be free. Maybe now the kingdom will come and we'll have peace. Maybe now the Messiah is going to come and he will conquer all and we'll be ready. Maybe it's right around the corner. Maybe it's coming. Maybe it's here. Just another month, another year. We're going to get there. And then it comes. And then there's disillusionment and disappointment and frustration and anger and then abandonment. I think what the Lord is doing for the people of Israel and what he is teaching us is that as much as you and I from the New Testament need to be ready for the Lord to come at any time, you and I need to be equally prepared for him to come many, many years, decades, centuries from now. We do not know when he's coming, but we must be ready. We need to be ready for him to come and we need to be ready to endure, to persevere, to trust the Lord's timing. And we need to be ready with the same mindset that Daniel here is encouraging the people of Israel to have. That as we relate to the world, not as if they are our friends, not as if we can accommodate to them and bring them and make us a part of them. We, we cannot associate ourselves in such a way that says that we are lined up with the nations and the kingdoms and the God-defying beasts of this world. But at the same time, we, we dare not leave it. We dare not forsake it. Rather, we are called to persevere, to endure, and to trust God over the long haul. More than this, verses 9 to 10 point us and give us this reminder that no matter how hard things get, no matter how the nations rage, the eternal king still reigns. The nations are raging in verses 2 to 7, 2 to 8, but the eternal king reigns and is seen to reign in verses 9 to 10. I watched till thrones were put in place 
And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. At the end of days, all the nations of the world, no matter how great and how powerful, and make no mistake, the nations and the kingdoms and the empires that Daniel is describing in Daniel chapter 7 verses 2 to 8, they are mighty kingdoms. Yet they will all fall before the king who reigns. What does that mean for you now? What does that mean for you tomorrow? What does that mean for you in this year of our Lord, 2024? Our Lord reigns. Nations come, nations go. But our Lord reigns supreme forever. We ought not to be like those in the world that, that live as if we have been defeated. We ought not to be living in the world as if we are, we are lost. As if the battle has been lost. Oh, brothers and sisters, we may be on the wrong side of the world, but as long as we are on the side of King Jesus, we are on the right side of history. He rules and he reigns and he will judge the world. The court was seated and the books are opened. And if we are to be on the right side of history, we must be on the right side of this king. And that is not a side that you and I can merely get on by our own striving. We do not, in the words of Christ in John chapter 3, we do not enter into the, into the kingdom of God merely because we have something about us. As if our, our goodness, our religiosity, our parentage, or any other quality that we might have. There is nothing, no quality about us that causes us to be able to be sure that we will see God, that we are in the kingdom of God. Becoming on the right side of God is not something that you and I can do. It is something that God must do for us. Romans 5, we have been meditating on as a church. And Paul in Romans 5 gives us these words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Having been declared righteous by God, we have peace with the King who reigns forever. And if we have peace with Him, we have access to Him. Oh, the world will one day stand and bow and answer to this King who sits on the throne. 
But if you have trusted in Christ, and if you will trust in Jesus, your peace is already secured. Your standing before Him is already taken care of. You are righteous in His sight. Oh, the court was seated and the books were opened. And God will judge the nations. And the nations may rage, but the eternal King will reign. Trust in Christ. That we may be included with those who gladly rejoice around His throne. The nations rage, but the eternal King reigns forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that we may have that despite all things that we see in the world, despite how so often it can feel as if the world has been spinning out of control, that we have this confidence, not confidence in the world leaders, but confidence in you, O God. Even as we long for you to do a work in our nation and in the nations in the world, O Lord, we pray that you, O God, will be seen, that you will help us to trust in you. That even as we look for the coming of our Savior, that you will teach us to endure all things as good soldiers of Jesus Christ that we may trust in you, not only for salvation, but we may trust in you and in your timing. Oh Lord, do all this and more in Christ's name we pray. Amen.